Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. It's taken about three years to get here, but the Latin American History Podcast has reached 50 episodes, and that feels like a bit of a milestone. I don't often stop and think about how the podcast is doing. I always feel a bit uncomfortable praising and promoting myself, but 50 episodes feels like a good moment to take stock of things. On average, each episode involves writing about three and a half thousand words. Sometimes a bit more, sometimes slightly less. This means that over the last three years, I've put about 175,000 words into this podcast. You could write a couple of PhD theses with that. I was having a look at the listening figures. The podcast has had listeners from every country in Latin America, which is nice. The only countries missing on the American continent are Suriname and Guyana. The majority of listeners are in the USA, followed by Britain, Canada and Australia. But the podcast has had people listen from as far afield as Iraq, Ghana, Kazakhstan, Kenya, Cambodia and Malawi. Looking at the episode figures, it seems that Mexico is what interests people most. The top two most listened to episodes are the very first two, Ancient Mexico and First Migration. The top 10 is dominated by episodes on Mexico, the Aztec and the Maya. So thank you to everyone who listens. The numbers make the effort feel worthwhile. Thank you as well to everyone who's got in touch over the last few years. It's really nice to receive messages from people who enjoy listening. A further thank you to everyone who has left iTunes reviews, or who has recommended the podcast to friends. It really does make a big difference. As I said, self-promotion isn't something that I'm a natural at. Most podcasts have regular requests for reviews on iTunes. Well, this seems like a pretty good time to do it. So if you feel like leaving a review, then it would be most appreciated. I'm also very bad at mentioning and updating the Facebook and Twitter pages. If you feel like following them, you can find them by searching for the Latin American History Podcast on Facebook and on Twitter, the podcast handle is at History Latin AM, all one word. I will try to get better at updating these pages. The podcast email, if you want to get in touch, is History of Latin America Podcast at gmail.com. Anyway, that's enough of that. So, conveniently, the series on the conquest of Mexico ended on episode 49, and that meant that we were not tied to covering anything specific. For this episode. I wanted to mark this milestone with something, 
And seeing as so many of us are all stuck inside at the moment, what with the pandemic crisis, I thought that people might enjoy some recommendations to help them fill some of the time. One of the things I love about Latin America is the colour, the sounds, the sheer quantity of life that seems to exist there. It's such a vibrant place, and while recounting the region's history is fascinating, and it can help us understand where that vibrance comes from, it doesn't really capture that atmosphere. Film, though, can. Watching a good Latin American film can give you a sense of the energy there, and for people who have spent time in the region, it can transport you back temporarily. Basically, the plan for this episode is to outline some of the best films I've come across from the region, what they're about and why you should watch them. While most are not history-based, although some of them are, I think watching them helps give the viewer a different understanding of the region one that complements the history usually provided in this podcast. If this doesn't interest you, that's fair enough. Normal service will resume next episode. So let's begin. The first film I want to mention is one that I discovered when I was about 14. It played a large part in awakening my interest in Latin America. It's often recognised by cinema fans all over the world as one of the best films to be made in the last couple of decades. It has to be one of the most stylish films I've ever seen, despite its grim setting. City of God, Ciudadio de Deus in Portuguese, is set in one of Rio de Janeiro's favelas, and it charts the growth of that particular slum over several decades. I will warn you now, it does not shy away from the brutal reality of life in the favelas. Some people might find the violence too much, and the fact that much of it involves children can make for some pretty distressing scenes. Throwing you straight into this violent setting, and instantly displaying the charisma of the film, the opening scene is, in my opinion, a masterpiece. Somewhere in the City of God, a group has gathered, and a party is starting. Cavaquinhos are being played, and people are singing along. People are pouring beers and preparing food. A chicken has just been slaughtered, and another is watching on with alarm. It manages to escape, and when this is noticed, the favela's gangsters, who are at the party, give chase. Meanwhile, the film's narrator is walking through the favela, and telling his friend how he needs to avoid these same gangsters, only to find himself face to face with them a moment later. Catch that chicken, they shout at him before suddenly the police turn up. The narrator has now stood right in the middle of a standoff. In front of him are the gangsters. Behind him are the police. Both are heavily armed. The camera circles around him, and then takes us back to when he was a child, playing football with some of those same gangsters. He introduces some of them, and himself. They are just children at that point, though. The previous generation of gangsters is in charge at that point, and one grabs the football and starts doing kick-ups. He kicks the ball into the air, pulls out his gun and shoots it. The shot freezes before the music kicks back in, and he spins his gun on his finger, making the kids cheer. Now this description does not do the cinematography of the scene justice. The camera work, the acting, the music... It all combines to make the scene effortlessly cool. 
While the film is extremely stylish, it's also intelligent, and it doesn't overly glorify the violence it portrays. It might make you want to go to Brazil, but it doesn't make you want to visit the favela. The extreme nature of the violence doesn't make the gangster life look attractive. Most of the gangsters meet some sort of sticky end. There are plenty of non-violent characters that add depth to the film as well. And this shows that many people just want to get on with life. The narrator, for example, dreams of being a photographer, and he just wants to get out of the slum. Besides the great storytelling and the superb camera work, one of the things that gives the film such a strong character is the music. The film provides a great introduction to the music of Brazil. There are some classics in there, with songs by Cartola, Tim Meyer, and also some songs composed especially for the film. The song being played in that opening scene was written by one of the biggest contemporary Brazilian musician, Seu Jorge, and it is, in my opinion, one of his best. Seu Jorge also plays one of the major characters, but he's basically the only famous person to act in City of God. Almost all the others were actually from the favelas. They had never acted before, and they lived a life that resembled the setting of the film to some extent. They all give excellent performances, particularly the two actors that play both the young and older Zé Pequeno. Unfortunately, despite making such an internationally acclaimed film, many of those actors did not benefit hugely from their participation. There is a documentary called City of God Ten Years Later, which is also worth seeking out. The filmmakers found that most had not gained much financially and were living the sort of lives they might have been expected to as favela kids if the film had not been made. The director, Fernando Mihelich, did make it big and he went on to direct English language films like The Constant Gardener, which is another excellent film, and most recently The Two Popes, which is on Netflix. If you watch City of God and you like it, you might be pleased to know that it inspired a couple of spin-offs. Besides the ten years later documentary, there was a TV show called City of Men, which eventually got a film of its own. They aren't quite the masterpieces that City of God is, but they're good watching, and they replace the style and finesse with a more true-to-life feel. They also feature some of the same actors, but this time playing new characters in a different favela. For our next film, we move on to Mexico City. Roma only came out about a year ago, and it's available on Netflix. Its setting is completely different to that of City of God, but its cinematography is just as good. Shot in black and white, the story is centred around a middle-class household in Roma, a well-off part of Mexico City. The family consists of a father, a doctor who's often away, his stay-at-home wife and their four children. The real star of the film, though, is one of the two Mishtek maids who look after the house. While the family's domestic issues play out, Cleo, the maid, has her own problems to deal with. Her strained relationship with her boyfriend being the main one. I don't want to give too much away, so I won't go into details. Meanwhile, the political turbulence of 1970s Mexico is playing out in the background. It sounds like a fairly mundane scenario compared to some of the other films I'm talking about in this episode, but that doesn't make it any less compelling. The space left open by the lack of gang warfare, jungle adventures and car crashes is filled by detail 
and the personalities of the characters. It's a fairly slow-moving film. Every shot is beautifully composed and painstakingly thought out. It's designed to be a portrait of a time and a place, rather than an epic story. Although the events and characters are fictional, the director describes the film as being semi-autobiographical. He grew up in this environment, which is why he is able to paint such a detailed portrait of it. The contrast between the lives of the family and their maid is stark, despite so much of their time being spent together in the same house. They live in different worlds, but the events of each spill over into the other. Their relationship is complex, despite the unequal power relations and the differences in economic status. This is not just the story of an employer and an employee. Even as things grow increasingly troubled in both the life of the house and that of the maid, there are moments of tenderness between them. All of the actors perform brilliantly. If they hadn't, the film probably wouldn't have worked. Like Roma, the next film is also shot in black and white. El Abrazo del Serpiente, The Embrace of the Serpent, is set deep in the Colombian rainforest, about as far away as it's possible to get from the urban settings of the two films we've looked at so far. It's a great piece of film that I think everyone will like, but it gets special thumbs up from me because one of the main characters is an ethnographer, basically an anthropologist. In this remote corner of South America, most of the population is indigenous. During production, the director spent a lot of time talking to the indigenous people of the area to make sure that one, they liked the film and how they were depicted, and two, they considered the indigenous cultural and spiritual concepts which feature heavily in the film to be accurate. The Embrace of the Serpent tells two stories simultaneously. In one time frame, an American botanist travels through the jungle in search of a plant which is sacred to the indigenous people and which he believes may have healing properties. To find it, he secures the help of an old indigenous man who agrees to act as his guide. In the second time frame, the same guide helps the ethnographer, a German, who has lived in the area for many years and who is now very ill. He too is searching for the plant in the hope that it might cure him. These events take place many years before, when the guide was a young man. The similarities between the two timelines, the same guide, the same aim, both featuring a white person, and the fact that they even visit some of the same places, mean that the different journeys blend into one at times. I believe that this is designed to represent the indigenous understanding of how time works. I'm not an expert at all on the anthropology of this area, but from my work elsewhere, I know that even a concept as basic as time itself can be viewed very differently by different cultures. We look at things in a linear way. This happened first, then this thing, and then another thing afterwards. However, not every culture sees it this way. Some cultures, for example, see time as cyclical. That is, everything that is happening now has happened before and will happen again. Again, I don't know enough about the cultures of the indigenous people of this region to say, but I suspect they must look at time in some way similar to this, and it's this that the director has tried to capture. Although it appears at first glance that the two white men are the protagonists of this story, 
Really, it's told through the perspective of the indigenous guide. Hence the strange overlapping and circling around of the timelines. That might all sound confusing. Watch the film and I promise it will make a bit more sense. So besides all those concepts and the interesting narrative style, the film packs a lot more in. It deals with the impact of missionaries, with the brutal rubber plantations that existed in the area, with general points about the impact of the wider world on the culture of indigenous peoples, and even with the disconnect between indigenous and western understandings of what should be done with a potentially medicinal plant, even if it is to be used for good, to heal people. Is it right to treat the plant as a commodity? Is the botanist just the latest in a long line of outsiders who want to take what they can from the indigenous people? Or is he trying to improve the world as a whole with a new medicine? The film deals with all these issues tactfully, and it avoids the trap of painting the indigenous people as 2D cutouts. The film has a bit of an Apocalypse Now feel to it. The film already feels strange because of the narrative style, but there is also plenty of madness among the various people who inhabit this remote jungle. It's beautifully filmed, and the choice to shoot in black and white adds to the atmosphere enormously. It's back to Mexico City for the next film, Amores Peros. The director, Alejandro González Iñárritu, is one of the most experimental directors making films at the moment. Pretty much everything he does is done in an intriguing and unique way. If you saw one of his more recent films, Birdman, you'll know what I mean. Amores Peros is no different. The film begins with two young guys speeding through the city. They are panicking. One is trying his best to drive through the traffic at high speed, and the other is focused on the unconscious and bleeding dog on the back seat. Behind, another car is chasing them, and when they get a clear view, one of its occupants is shooting at them. At one point, they think they've escaped, only to find their assailants have caught up with them again. Then, at a junction, they crash into another car. From this one moment, the film spirals outwards to show three different stories, all completely separate, but now connected by that crash. One is the story of the two men in the car. It explains how they got to that point. Another is of a woman injured in the crash. Her life is very different to theirs, and it will be very different again after the accident. The third is about a witness to the crash. How it affects his life is more complex, and I don't really want to go into detail about his story because I don't want to give anything away. The film's best feature is the way it tells its stories. By telling them, it allows the director to explore how we move in our own world, and how these worlds can look very different to that of the people who inhabit the same spaces as us. At the same time, those worlds can come crashing together in an instant, sometimes seemingly at random. It's a very different film to Roma, but some of those themes are similar, and as they're both set in Mexico City, they make good companion pieces. The director has made two more films that use similar unorthodox narrative styles. In Babel, for example, several even more distant and seemingly unconnected stories play out, 
and then we discover that they are intertwined in a complex and creative way. Much of that film doesn't take place in Latin America. There are parts in Japan, Morocco and the USA. Some of it does take place in Mexico though, and one scene is particularly memorable. A Mexican nanny takes the American children she's in charge of over the border. It's an eye-opening experience for them. Having only known suburban California, the sights, sounds and colours of Mexico come as a bit of a shock. The scene consists of those experiences, seen through their eyes, and interspersed with shots of the wide-eyed children, staring out of the car windows at everything they pass. The soundtrack to the scene is Cumbia Sobre el Rio, by the great and recently deceased Celso Pina. Besides being a really good song, it fits perfectly. The other film in the series, 21 Grams, takes place exclusively in the USA, so it isn't really Latin American. But if you like Amores Peros and Babel, it's a good film, and you'll enjoy it as well. I hadn't realised this before starting to write this episode, but it turns out that either I really like films that tell their story in a non-linear way, or maybe it's just that a lot of the best films that Latin America has produced are done that way. Probably both. The next film also jumps around between time frames. In El Secreto en Sus Ojos, The Secret in Their Eyes, an investigator revisits his old boss to talk about a case they worked on several decades before. It was a serious one. A woman was found raped and murdered, and nobody was brought to justice. This was a murky and dangerous time. The crime and subsequent investigation took place during the military dictatorship in Argentina. It was a place where people just disappeared, taken away by the state as it sought to control the country with the firmest grip possible. Their investigation takes them into this world of fear and silence and provides a window for the director to show us what Argentina was like at the time. The story is told through the conversation between the investigator and his boss in the present day, but this scene is interspersed with long flashbacks to the events as they happened. The investigator has never been able to get over how things went, both in terms of the investigation and his relationship with his boss. He feels like things were left unfinished. He's decided to write a novel based on the case, and has looked her up as part of his research. He wants to get her perspective on the case. The idea that for him personally, things from back then were left unfinished, is a clever plot feature, because in some respects, it mirrors the feeling of Argentina as a whole. Terrible things happened during the dictatorship there, and it took a long time for them to be dealt with properly. The head of the military junta that seized power in 1976 and who ran the government for the majority of that period, was only brought to trial successfully in 2010. Some of the crimes committed during that period are still unsolved, and famously, a group called the Mothers of the Plaza marched every week until 2006 outside the presidential palace, demanding to know where their disappeared children went. Some of them still march today to commemorate their struggle and to raise awareness of other human rights issues. As well as providing some insight into dictatorship-era Argentina then, 
The film also helps to illustrate how the country today is still coming to terms with its past. Now I should note, I've only been to Argentina once, and that was about 10 years ago. I gather that in the last couple of decades, some progress has been made towards reconciling the past. Some of this happened after the film was made. It's hard for me to say then how much the legacy of the dictatorship period still hangs over the country. But understanding it, and its legacy, is an important part of understanding the country. The cinematography in the film is good, but there's one scene in particular that stands out. Anyone who likes football will know that the atmosphere in a stadium can be intense. And in Argentina, that intensity is extreme. In this scene, the investigator and his sidekick search for someone in the crowd, and this leads to a chase. It's hard to do the scene justice by trying to explain it, and also I don't want to give too much away. But the setting and the camera work make the whole scene extremely memorable. I also want to mention that sidekick. He's a drunk, and he provides the perfect foil to the seriousness of the main character. The film deals with difficult subjects, and the comedy that this sidekick brings is welcome. You might recognise the title of the film. There was a Hollywood remake a few years ago. I haven't seen it, so I don't know if it's any good. But the setting, Argentina under its military junta, is so fundamental to the story and the overall feel of the film that I'm not sure how the remake would work when forced into a different time and place. So those films are the absolutely top Latin American films that I've seen. But I wanted to give a few more honourable mentions. The first one is Soy Cuba. Now this one takes patience. It's pretty strange. It might not appeal to people who aren't really into cinema. It was made in the 60s, a joint production between Castro's government and Soviet Russia. It is then partly a propaganda piece, which looks at Cuba before and after the revolution. Being government funded, however, it had a lot of financial backing, and the cinematography is amazing, especially for the time. Cuba is such a vibrant place that it makes an ideal canvas for all that money and cinematic artwork. The story behind the film is also quite strange and interesting. Despite being a government project, it wasn't a big hit in either Cuba or Russia, and because of the politics, it never really made it out of the communist bloc. For decades it was largely forgotten, but then it was rediscovered in the 90s. Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola both became big fans, and they decided to put up the money to re-release it. Now it's considered a classic by fans of experimental film. Next are two films about the Pinochet years in Chile. One examines the beginning of his military government, and the other looks at the end. Machuca tells the story of two boys, one rich and the other poor, who are brought together by the policies of socialist president Allende. A group of poorer boys are allowed to study for free at an expensive private school, and the two main characters make friends. The film depicts a polarised society with sharp divisions between rich and poor. The two boys learn about each other's very different lives, but as the poorer members of society start to demand more, and the richer members feel threatened by the idea of social change, the viability of their new friendship is tested. The other film, No, examines the campaign for the No vote in the 1988 referendum 
on whether Pinochet should continue to hold power unopposed, or whether there should be an election. The lead character has a successful career in advertising, and he moves in circles whose interests don't necessarily align with change. He is recruited by the campaign to hold an election, and he brings in some of the flashy techniques he has learnt in marketing. In doing so, he creates some hostility among some of the politicians and campaigners on his own side. They believe they should be using their campaign to highlight the human rights abuses committed by the regime, but the lead character decides that they should give a more hopeful message of change instead. Now, No has been criticised for oversimplifying things, and of course it takes more than an advertising campaign to change the world. Despite this, it's a good film and a good starting point for people who want to learn more about the subject. All of the films I've mentioned so far are ones that I've seen, but of course, there are many more great Latin American films. Some of these may be better than the ones I've talked about. Before going, I wanted to mention a couple which are on my watch list. Birds of Passage is about the Wayu, who live in the desert of the Guajira Peninsula in Colombia. In the film, one family, led by a fearsome matriarch, establish themselves as a sort of mafia. It's directed by Cyril Gira, who also made The Embrace of the Serpent. Another of his films is called The Wind Journeys. It looks like a Gabriel Garcia Marquez novel, a piece of magic realism for the screen. It tells the story of a cursed accordion and one boy's quest to become the best accordion player in Colombia. By coincidence, the last film I want to see is also Colombian. Monos was released last year and it's about a group of children who are being trained to fight in the Civil War, up in the remote highlands. I don't really know much about it beyond that, but the trailer makes it look really intriguing. Anyway, if you're looking for something to watch while you're stuck inside, then that should keep you occupied for a while. Next episode, it's back to the history. You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website www.maxargent.com slash the history of Latin America and that's spelt M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T If you have any comments or questions feel free to get in contact at historyoflatinamericapodcast at gmail.com You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast The Twitter handle is at History Latin AM, and if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash photo. That's spelt www.etsy.com slash m-a-x-s-e-r-j-e-a-n-t photo. Thanks for listening.